Open your Bibles, if you're not there already, to the Epistle of James. The Epistle of James. I'm going to share a few things with you today. Today is going to be a high-level overview, and but I want to make a few comments before we actually start uh, going into the the history and then looking at the first two or three verses in the epistle of James. Um, I mentioned today that today is going to be an overview, so we'll look at some of the history associated just briefly with the epistle. We'll give you the historical context. We'll give you the thematic context. What is the epistle about? But it really is going to be like two messages in one, if you would. One will be an overview, and then we'll be looking at verses uh, 1, 2, and 3. And verses 2 and 3 deal with the whole issue of trials. And the reason I'm mentioning this, quite frankly, is this. Um, When we speak about trials, when we speak about testing, when we speak about suffering, there's a part of me that I believe that we tread on holy ground. The sufferings of the saints of God is a work of holiness that God does in the lives of believers. And I want to I preface this in advance. I don't want anybody to believe that you know, we, we rattle off a few thoughts or concepts on the issue of suffering because I know that many of you here are going through various trials, various testings, and various sufferings. And I don't want to minimize that in any way. You know, one person feels that they're suffering because they don't have enough money in their checking account and another person may feel that they're suffering because they have cancer, right? One isn't worse than the other. The goal of what we're going to do is to see the glory of God, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in all things. In all things. Why? So that we as believers can be rooted and grounded in Christ, That when we know when we pass through a trial, when we pass through a tribulation, that we do not, as believers in Christ, go at it alone. And so, as we jump into this epistle, the first thing I want everybody to know right from the beginning is the intent is the glory of God, the glory of Christ, the magnificence of what was accomplished for believers at the cross of Calvary. You know, if, if there's a drum I beat constantly, it's the drum of salvation. What was accomplished for us by Christ? I think that is perhaps the most important thing that a believer can know. To know that not only were you saved from your sins, not only were you forgiven of your sins, but Christ has procured for the believer so much more. And that procurement of things that Christ has provided for us are practical. 
What do I mean? That means that it has everyday ramifications for us. It has everyday relevance for us. The salvation that was procured on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ, the ransom that Christ provided us, wasn't just so that we could say, oh, I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. He has provided for us a bounty so much more through the workings of the Holy Spirit. And these have practical ramifications for us from the moment that we're saved until the moment we leave this world and we head into eternal glory. So as we talk about things of trials and temptations and sufferings, and as you hear certain observations or perhaps certain principles, know for sure that what Christ has provided is so much more. And not to become trite, or not to say, I tried this and it didn't work. So as we jump into the Word of God, we'll see the glory of Christ's salvation in this epistle. And I wanted to, to put that out there. Now, as we enter this book of James, the first question you might ask yourself is, okay, who's the author? I'll give you a hint. It's James. Now, you might be saying, which James? I hear a lot of James in the Bible, right? Well, specifically, this epistle is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And as we know in the Scripture, as we see in the Scripture, when Jesus first began his ministry, his own brothers and sisters were not believers. They were not convinced. John 7, 5 tells us that. John uh, 7, 5 tells us, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, you may have heard, I don't know if you heard, I, I, I don't know how broad your exposure is, but there are what are called Gnostic Gospels. And one of the Gnostic Gospels speaks of Jesus performing miracles as a child. You know, so, you know, um, there are certain traditions that hold to that, that Jesus like, was like a wonder boy. And one of them talks about that he had these little uh, wood birds, and they were playing with another child, and then Jesus, like, touched them, and they turned into real birds, and they flew away. Well, that would be inconsistent with the scriptural record, right? Because we know at the wedding of Cana, Right? It says this was Jesus' first miracle. This was the first sign that he performed. But it's amazing when you consider that when Jesus began his ministry, after even turning the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, his brothers did not believe him. Now, I hope none of you are here that your first response was, Jesus had brothers? yes. Jesus did have brothers, and he did have sisters, and they are recorded in the gospel. So this writer here is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, it's interesting because after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, it appears that his brothers and his family did embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord just as we have to do. 
just as everybody else has to do. So the author is James, right? And the theme of the epistle, what I like about this book of James is, unlike the writings of Paul and John and even Peter, that are very doctrinal in origin, this epistle of James is very practical. As a matter of fact, it really is practical Christianity. You heard it as Jason read the scripture reading this morning. And the theme of it is to challenge believers. It's going to challenge believers to genuine saving faith in Christ. And James' premise in this epistle, in this letter, is genuine saving faith is evident by works of righteousness. In other words, the works don't precede salvation. They don't come before. You don't do things in order to be saved. It's just the opposite. When a man or a woman comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, then what follows as a result of regeneration of the new birth, what follows are works of righteousness that give evidence to the work that God has done in the believer's life. I mentioned to you, we will see some doctrinal content, but it will not be as broad as if we were studying some of Paul's epistles. And the other thing that's worth noting, too, is from a practical perspective, this practical Christianity perspective that James writes, he kind of follows very closely the principles that the Lord Jesus Christ laid out in his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And as we we jump into the word more in the, the weeks to come, you'll see some of these parallels that will begin, now uh, that we will see. Now, as we begin the epistle in chapter 1, immediately we're going to see that James speaks to trials. And if we were going to outline James 1, I outline James 1 this way. The first element is the purpose of God in trials. And we see that in verses 2 through 12. The second one is the providence of God in trials. And we see that in verses 13 through 16. And then lastly, we see the perfection of God through trials in verses 17 through 18. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. So we're just going to scratch the surface on it. Now, if you look at verses 1 through 3, they read as follows. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. 
For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded uh, man, unstable in all his ways. For let the brother... Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position and let the rich man glory in his humiliation because like the flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises and, uh, with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too is the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, I mentioned in the first part that the, the first part really is the purpose of God in trials. And the threat to the church throughout the ages, since its inception, the threat to the church has always been False religion and false doctrine. False religion and false doctrine. Why? Because false religion and false doctrine pull away, it diverts, it distracts from the message of the truth. Empty professions, empty professions, ritualism, stale, cold tradition has always been a problem in the church since Pentecost. And if you look at cold orthodoxy, it has marred the church. If you see the history of the church, you have the church being born in Acts chapter 2 there at Pentecost. You see the church moving through the world. You see them moving with power and authority. It goes into the second century with power and authority. Churches are being multiplied. They're growing. And by the way, 98% of them were small house churches or small gatherings. But as you start to end toward the middle of the 3rd century into the 4th century, you start to see the church begin to organize. You start to see a hierarchy starting to build in the church. And with this organization comes a dark time in the church history. The dark ages where tradition takes over. Cold, stale tradition. Hearts far from God. God has always called men to come and preach, men that are full of the Holy Spirit, but preaching from a heart that is true and lit afire by God and by the Holy Spirit. I personally have participated, well, not participated, I personally have been in church services where the preaching of the Word of God was devoid of any authority. Some preachers like to talk about dead men preaching dead words to dead people. I've seen that. I've seen that. It's only a life that is on fire that is going to reach someone for Christ. It is only a person that is fully persuaded in whom he has believed. Not merely in what he has believed, but in whom he has believed. It is a heart that is full of the Holy Spirit. It is a heart that is in passion for Christ. It has to be a heart that looks out on the world and sees people lost in their estate, 
dying and going to hell. That has to bother. And it is that 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 moves the man of God. And may I add, it's that which moves the woman of God to go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to not be ashamed, to not be embarrassed, so that none would perish. In the Old Testament, during the days of Israel, in the Old Testament, there were numerous calls for self-examination to test one's affection for God. Psalm 17.3. Notice what the psalmist says. Thou hast tried my heart. Thou hast visited me by night. Thou hast tested me and dost find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. The psalmist says, you tried my heart. You examined my heart. You looked into my heart. Psalm 26, verses 1 and 2. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Notice what he says next. Examine me. Oh, man. Is that a statement or what? Lord, look into my heart and examine me. What's there? What's there? The psalmist says, examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Test my mind, the object of the things that I think on, the object of the things I dwell on. But test my heart, the center of my emotions. Where are my affections? Where are my passions? Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Some of you may know this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way, any wicked way in me. And lead me in the path everlasting. Yes, The Old Testament, God had called to his people for a purity of heart. And in order to arrive at that purity of heart, God has called for men and women, try me, search me. Listen, that's one of the things that we are to do in repentance. God, I know of these things that exist in my heart. I know they're there. But what don't I know, God? Send the purifying eyes of the Holy Spirit to examine my heart, to examine my mind. Where are my affections? You hear me say this so many times. How do we, you know, James, by the way, James answers the question that so many people ask. How do I know if I'm saved? And I tell you, it's probably the number one question I get. How do I know if I'm really saved? And I say, well, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is God your greatest affection? Is he your greatest longing? Is he your greatest desire? If you could have anything in the world, anything, anytime, any place, would you want God above everything else? 
The New Testament is also full. We don't have time to go through all of them, but it is also full of numerous calls for self-examination. One of the ones I think of that comes to mind right away, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Notice the admonition of Paul to the church at Corinth. Test yourself. Wow. See if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Paul tells the church, test yourself if you're in the faith. Listen, I'll say something here, and and I don't mean anything by it. I just want to be direct and, and, uh, about this. But I, I just want to say something. We've had about 50, 60 years of decisional regeneration. If you don't know what decisional generation is, it is make your decision for Christ today. Say a prayer, get it done, make sure you're not going to hell. And we hear so often of so many people, oh, this brother, this sister used to come to church. Now they've fallen away and they're involved in all kinds of sin and I've reached out to them. They don't want to know anything about it. Why? Because empty professions don't change a life. Only Christ does. Only Christ does. And if we are going to confess the name of Christ, Christ. If we are going to bear the name of Christian, then our commitment should match that confession. What does that mean? If I call myself a Christian, then my life should be in accordance with all that the Word of God says about being a Christian. Look at Hebrews 3.12. The writer of Hebrews says this, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Take care. Heed. That's what that is. Heed. Listen up and heed. Lest there be in you evil, unbelieving heart falling away from the living God. There are numerous other verses that admonish and encourage people to test the genuineness of their faith. Listen, the results of these tests have eternal benefits or eternal consequences. That's just the truth. And because our enemy, Satan himself, disguises himself How does he disguise himself? How does Satan disguise himself? Did he come with horns coming out, a green face? How does Satan disguise himself? He disguises himself as an angel of light. He comes very religious. He comes quoting the word of God. Remember in the garden? Hath God said? God didn't say that. God knows that the moment you eat of it, you're going to become just like him. He manipulates the Word of God. We saw that for those of you on Tuesday night when we were studying the last day. What did I tell you about Satan? When you think about Satan, think manipulator. Think manipulator. He manipulates the Word of God. 
The Antichrist is not going to burst on the scene yelling blasphemies from day one. No, the Antichrist is going to burst on the scene looking moral, looking ethical, looking religious to deceive many. Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light by advocating false doctrine and false belief that will cause people not to heed the true word of God. And for many years, for the past 50, 60 years, this make a profession thing, and God doesn't require anything else, and there's no repentance, and there's no turning from sin, and there's no new life. Well, it has caused many to fall away from the message of the truth. And I want to share something. The Word of God provides clarity, absolute clarity to the believer to know whether they are living rightly before a holy God. Listen, Christ came and died to purchase a people zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You know this. For the for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not the result of works that no one should boast. Now notice what he says here. For we are his workmanship. We are Christ's workmanship. He crafted us. He saved us. He regenerated us. We are his workmanship created where? By ourselves? No, created in Christ Jesus. What for? He answers the question. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with him. God created a people zealous for good works. God had good works that would be done, the proclamation of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel. He had prepared it beforehand so that all who follow Christ by faith would walk in those good works and would show the world the glory of God. Look at what God does when he saves a man One of the things I think it's important in the church all across the world is that we as a people of God would become more preoccupied with rendering, with bringing God glory than with self-promotion and advancing our own interests. True saving faith in Jesus Christ does indeed produce change in those that are saved. And that change is the glorious good works that God has. That is proof of salvation, by the way. What are the byproducts? Jesus said you'll know them how. He didn't say you're going to know them by what they profess. He didn't say you're going to know them by the bumper stickers they have on their car. He didn't say you're going to know them by the T-shirts they wear. He didn't say you're going to know them depending on what church they go to. He said you will know the true believer how? By the fruit of their lives. What do they produce? What is a byproduct of your faith? 
That's what fruit is. It's a byproduct. What is being produced? So the epistle of James, I like to think of it as practical Christianity. This is the blocking and tackling of Christianity. This is practical stuff. And James answers that question, as I mentioned previously. How do I know if I'm saved? I like what my brother Mike said. He said, you really want to take a self-examination and really come under conviction. Read this epistle of James. It will be convicting, very convicting. But conviction is good. For it leadeth a man or a woman, what? Unto righteousness in God. Unlike the world who says, don't give me the hard truths and kind of sweep it under the table and let everything be beautiful, the Word of God in this epistle of James confronts practical truth and says, I'm going to show you the glory of God. Now, let's take a look at it. So let's look at verse 1 here. James 1.1 says, James, a bondservant of God, and of our Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greeting. And I love the way James begins his epistle, referring to himself as a bond slave, a bond servant. King, King James has it as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen this word before. That's the Greek word doulos. The Greek word doulos means a slave who was purchased. That's what it means, a slave who was purchased. It is also a slave that is fully dependent upon his master for everything, for clothing, for shelter, for food. So this doulos is a slave. James identifies himself. He says, hey, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, you may want to notice something here. James didn't identify himself saying, hey, this is James, the brother of Jesus. That's my big brother over there. He's the Savior and Lord, and I'm his little brother. Neither did James introduce himself that I am James, leader of the church in Jerusalem. We see immediately in the introduction a humility that comes from James. And as I mentioned to you before, that James and his other brothers and sisters didn't believe in Christ at first, but they did come to saving faith in Christ, and they became followers. Acts 1.13 tells us this, these all with one mind, speaking of the early church, were one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, now listen to this, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And James addresses right here in verse 1 to whom this epistle is intended. He states, Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, the 12 tribes is synonymous with Israel, right? So what is he saying? This is James writing to Jewish people who have been dispersed abroad. And during the first century, Rome had forcibly relocated many Jews from Palestine and sent them in other parts of the world. 
Plus, there were other Jews afraid of what was going on in Palestine that moved out and went to other regions. These are Jewish believers that are dispersed worldwide. And many of these Jewish believers had suffered for their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes I don't think we get the correct picture of first century Judaism. It wasn't a pluralistic society as we have today. Hey, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to convert and I'm going to be this religion. I'm going to convert to be that religion. To follow Christ in the first century meant that you were excommunicated from the synagogue. To be excommunicated from the synagogue means you no longer had friends, you no longer had the network that you grew up with. So the people perhaps that you purchased from, the people that perhaps you had a business you sold to, gone. They would cease doing business with you. This excommunication was rather severe. Church history records one of them, and that is Nicodemus. You all know Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus became a follower of Christ. As a matter of fact, it was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who went and got the body of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus would go on to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you remember what John says of Nicodemus? He was the teacher in Israel. He was the teacher of the Pharisees. This was the top dog. The other Pharisees came to Nicodemus and said, Nicodemus, how do you interpret this portion of Scripture? That's what he was. He was the top dog. He became a follower of Christ. Nicodemus, prior to his conversion to Christ, was one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. He had great wealth. When Nicodemus was converted to Christ, when he took his stand for Christ, the Gospels don't tell us, but certain uh, church history uh, articles tell us, he was forced out of Jerusalem. His wealth All his wealth was seized. He was pushed into the Judean wilderness where he starved and he suffered. Toward the end of his life, Nicodemus, starving, terribly sick, sent his daughter into Jerusalem to beg of the people for money and for food and for wealth, uh, for money, for food, and for medicine. And she went around to the old networks. Hey, you know, can you help out? Can you help out? When they found out that this was for Nicodemus, they took everything away. She left Jerusalem broke. Nicodemus died in obscurity, penniless, and broke for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what do you think Nicodemus's reward in glory is? Oh Lord, his reward is amazing, it's wonderful, it's glorious, it's magnificent. See, if we are in Christ, we are bond servants, we are slaves of Christ. And we must not cheapen what that means 
We have been purchased. You know, slaves were purchased. Like you would buy a car, like you would buy a piece of furniture. They would parade a human being. It's, it's unimaginable to us today. But parade a human being and somebody with money would say, I'll, I'll buy that person. And not all slaves, I'm not making an argument for slavery, please don't misinterpret what I'm going to say. Some masters were very kind to their slaves. That's just the truth of history. Some were very cruel. Some treated slaves worse than they treat animals. Think about you and I in Christ. Christ purchased us. He didn't use silver or gold. He used his blood. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ransom Jason. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy Sue. But unlike the masters of the world, cruel taskmasters, Christ purchased us with his love. This is motivation. And he purchased us, as we read before in Ephesians, for good works that would glorify God, that would magnify God, that would exalt God. I love the, the first article in the Westminster Confession of Faith. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Do you ever think about enjoying God? Purchased by Christ, that we enter into the fullness of this relationship in Jesus Christ to enjoy Him. James here uses the term bond slave as a term of endearment. I am a bond slave for Christ. Do you think of yourself as a slave for Christ? Oh, we talk about all the glories and we're sons and daughters of God. But at the end of the day, we have been purchased with the blood of Christ. And we are bond slaves for Christ. He addresses this to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. They're all over the, the land of the Middle East. And he just gives them a greeting. And then we come into verse 2. And rather, what may appear to be a strange statement, he says this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James now begins to expound on the purpose of God through trials in a believer's life. That word trials, in King James, it says diverse diverse temptations. But the Greek word is parosmos. But the significant about this is it has a positive connotation and it has a negative connotation. And the context determines the meaning. So the context determines the meaning. In a positive sense, it's used as a test. Hey, this is a test. And in the negative sense, it's used as a temptation. 
alluring, a trial, right? And he says here, now behind all of this is it could be a test from God or it can be a temptation of the enemy. James writes this to those who are persevering for the faith. They're persevering for the faith in Jesus Christ. And he starts with a rather strange way. Consider it joy. Consider it joy. It means the occasion for joy. Consider it an occasion for joy when we come into various trials. James 1.4 says this, and we're going to, we'll see this as this unpound. He said, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And again, here I want you to heed my warning. I, I, I want to reiterate this once again because I do want to be very sensitive here. You may be in the, in, the, in the actual throes, you may be in the actual throes of a trial or a temptation or a testing right now. You may be experiencing great sorrow. Please know I am not attempting in any way to explain away in a few minutes what you might be going through, okay? I just want to show you what the Word of God has to say. Now, I believe many in the church, we hold an incorrect view toward trials, testings, and even sufferings. The most pervasive view that, out, that is out there is kind of this dualistic kind of view. That all bad things happen because of Satan and all good things happen because of God. Now, what's the key ingredient here? We determine what is good. We determine what is bad. So in our estimation, if it doesn't conform to what we want, we have a tendency to view that as negative and then we're Oh, this is the devil. The devil brought this upon me. The devil, the devil, the devil. I think we give the devil too much credit. He's not sovereign. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. But yet we're rebuking the devil like it's going out of style, left and right. When we speak of trials and testing and suffering, as I mentioned previously, we're treading on holy ground. Why is it holy ground? Because it's in these places the men and women of God are formed. Men and women of God are fashioned. Scripture clearly states that God, that God has a purpose for trials. God has a purpose for testing. God even has a purpose for suffering in the believer's life. Listen, Christians go through trials, and I know many of you, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Christians suffer hardships. Christians get sick. Christians lose jobs. Christians suffer difficulty. And it's not always because of our adversary, Satan. It is often because God has chosen to test us and purify us 
and through trials that we would come to a deeper, deeper faith in Christ. Listen, John Piper has this good statement. I want to share it with you. It's what he says. The suffering of sickness and the suffering of persecution have this in common. They are both intended by Satan for the destruction of our faith and governed by God for the purifying of our faith. Christ sovereignly accomplishes His loving, purifying purpose by overruling Satan's destructive attempts. Satan is always aiming to destroy our faith, but Christ magnifies His power in our weakness. He magnifies His power. Let's look. Let's look. I, I just... I'm actually running behind, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this a little bit quickly. But I want to show you something. I want to show you that God is supremely sovereign in everything. And let's look at the scriptural record just to, to validate that. Look at Psalm 37, 23, 24. And I have it here in the King James. It says, the steps of a good man, the steps of the righteous are ordered by God. And he delighteth in his way. And though he falls, he shall not be utterly cast down. For what? For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Right there we establish the sovereignty of God. God upholds the righteous. God has ordered the steps of the righteous. Now is that really true? Let's look at the scriptural record. Let's look at the first person that came to mind when I was doing this. Let's look at Abraham. Abraham, Father Abraham. Hebrews eleven seventeen says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. In Genesis 22, it says, God decided to test Abraham. It's a tough test. There was a couple that were in their high 90s when they had their child. And then God says, hey, I want you to go up to Mount Moriah. I want you to offer him to me. God had a very specific purpose with Abraham. God tested his heart of Abraham. And the result of the test was amazing. Romans 4.3 tells us, For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Well, when did he believe him? He believed him when he went up to Mount Moriah to offer him. God stayed the hand of Abraham. And the result was what? Saving faith, righteousness. Here's another person, Job. We all know of the hardships of Job, right? This is Job speaking at the end of his suffering. He makes this incredible claim, Job 42, verses 5 and 6. He said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee, therefore I retract and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Job, through the trial, knew of God, but Job experienced God in the trial. That's what he means by, I have heard of you. I had previously heard all about you, but now I see thee. I see your hand in the trial, and I repent. 
I think of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Corinthians 12.7 says this, and this is Paul talking about his own trial. And previous to this, he said, hey, I was given a revelation that it's not lawful to speak about. I saw things that were unlawful, meaning that the glory of God was revealed to him in this revelation, and he couldn't repeat the things that he said. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says this, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, notice, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul could have been walking around, let me tell you about the vision I saw of God, and I saw this, and I saw that. That's too pervasive today, right? Everybody's got a vision, everybody's telling everybody. But Paul says, that to keep him from exalting himself, what happened? There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. And we know that Paul would ask three times, Lord, take this from me. What was the answer of God? No, I'm not going to take it. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say that he tells Paul that strength is perfected in weakness. And it's funny because Paul sums up the results of this in 2 Corinthians 12.10 where he says there, he says this, Therefore, I am well content with weakness with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know what your trial is. I don't know what your pain is. Some people have a tendency to come into church and we smile a lot and say everything's okay. You know, I'm doing well. But I do know this. It's in trials. It's in testings that our hearts are drawn back to the gracious, omnipotent God with whom All things are possible. Is that not true? Does not the trial drive you to your knees and cry out, God, I can't. God, help me. God, be my strength. God, be my shield. God, this mountain is too great for me. God, I can't get through the next minute. I can't get through the next hour. I can't get through the next day. But God, I don't know how I'm going to make it. But God, but God, but God. And it brings us back to that place where we fall into the arms of the loving God. J.C. Ryle says this, trials are intended to make us think, to wean us off of the world, and to send us to the Bible to drive us to our knees. If you give me a few more minutes, I just want to give you five applications, just five applications 
I'll pick up some of this next week, but I, I, I want to end with these truths. Five applications for believers to embrace during times of trial and testing. And the first one is, believe that God has a plan and a purpose. Discard the notion, please, discard the notion that we as believers are to live a life of ease and comfort. Will you throw that away, please? That is of the world. That is of the world. John 16.33, Jesus said this, In the world, what did he say we shall have in the world? In the world you shall have tribulation, but what? But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So when you are befallen by tribulation, when you are falling by, uh, befallen by testing or trial, Jesus said it. Right? But through Christ, we can overcome any trial, any temptation, any suffering. And I don't say that glibly. Okay? Please understand that. The second one. Believe that Christ is working your situation for eternal good. There's an eternal purpose here. And it is eternal good, but it is eternal good according to God. Peter, writing to persecuted Christians in 1 Peter 5.10, says this, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. And Peter states that God is in their circumstances, that God is in their suffering and will perfect and strengthen him. The third one, believe that in our weakness, Christ's perfect strength and grace are being manifested. Paul states, as we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Therefore I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sakes. For when I am Weak, then I am strong. Paul states that God's power is seen in our weakness as he gives us the grace and strength to stand and honor him. The fourth one, believe that nothing, listen, this is a big one, nothing is by chance but that God is sovereign in all things. And this includes our trials and testings. Joseph stated to his brother in Genesis 50-20, and as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant this for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Peter and John and the early church recognized God's sovereignty when they faced persecutions in Acts chapter 4. In verse 28, they cried to God and recognized that their persecution was ordained by God as they prayed prayed and said, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. God is sovereign. If you're a believer, God is sovereign in your life. And lastly, number five, believe that God is producing an eternal weight of glory. Paul states in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God is working an eternal weight of glory. 
We're going to see in this epistle so much of the glory of God, so much of what has been procured for us in Christ, so much of purpose and practical understanding. And I pray that the Spirit of God would encourage your hearts today, would speak to your hearts today, and would hold you fast in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. There's so much of this, Lord, we don't understand. So much. And it's hard, Lord. I know it's hard. And I pray for those, Lord, among this congregation that are suffering, Lord. Some of who it has been seasons of suffering. It's, it's been one after another, one after another, Lord. But Father, I look out and I see their faces and I see them holding to You, Lord God. At times not even realizing, Lord God, how can I do this another minute? holding on to faith by their fingernails, Lord. But you, God, are undergirding them. You are strengthening them. You are working an eternal weight of glory. I think about the words of Paul who says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And Father, I pray that through the Holy Spirit you would encourage every broken heart today, Lord God. Encourage them with your presence. Encourage them with your word. Fill their hearts and fill their minds with your word, O God. Give them the hope of Christ that their suffering is not in vain. Father, your word tells us, Lord God, that you never leave us nor forsake us. Father, that word is true. And you are indeed the sovereign God. And so, Father, Lord God, as we embark on this study, will you flood our hearts and minds with truth, Lord God? Truth that we could use, truth that we could anchor ourselves to because Christ is our anchor and He is that rock that follows us and He is our source and our strength. And I pray that, Lord, that He would become a more present reality in our hearts and lives. So I ask you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.